0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the Business Station. The minimum wage level in Malaysia is currently at 1,500 ringgit, which isn't even a living wage, which experts say is around 2,700 ringgit in the Klang Valley. But it isn't just the minimum wage We often hear about people with bachelor's or master's degrees barely making a living wage too. Many Malaysians, including professionals, are leaving to work in neighbouring countries for better wages. But why are wages in Malaysia so low? I'm Darshan Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Dr Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. Welcome to the show Jeffrey, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good as well. I'm excited to unpack this with you. How would you describe the standard of wages in Malaysia?
1: Um, I think it's fair to characterize uh, wages in Malaysia as being generally very low. They've also uh, taken a bit of a beating in the last few years, particularly during the lockdown. So um, if we look, for example, at average wages, average wages fell During the lockdown from 2019, they fell by um, more than 9%. And median wages also fell by about 15.6%. That means half of the population. So um, in 2020, half of the population was earning less than um, 2,062 ringgit a month. Uh, So that shows you how, how far they had fallen. They recovered a little bit during 2021 but they're still lower than where they were in 2019. So their uh, median wages are still 7.9% lower than where they were in 2019. So what that means is that overall, we, we have this relatively low level of um, wages on average and for you know, more than half the population when we look at the median wage. And as you mentioned in the introduction, if we look at something like a living wage, which you, you mentioned, the figure of 2,700. Uh, but that was actually estimated in 2016. Right. So if, if we increase that according to the rate of inflation, it would be closer to uh, 3,000. It would be a little bit more than 3,000, actually. So if you say that the living wage for a single person is about 3,000 ringgit, and yet the average wage is actually the average wage in 2021 was only about 3,000 ringgit, and the median rate, uh, wage in 2021 was 2,250 ringgit. That means that more than half of the people are very far below uh, a, living, a living wage estimate. So, of course, it varies by different types of people. Um, if you uh, have tertiary education, your, your average wage is likely to be higher. And it, the average wage for people with tertiary education is above 4,500, heading toward 5, 5,000. But if you have primary education levels only, or you have no formal education at all, then the average wages are barely uh, in line with the minimum wage that you mentioned, which is uh, 1,500 ringgit now. But of course, you have to remember that that has been paused um, for most companies. Uh, and it's still, formally, it would still be about 1,200 Ringgit, and it will only be in March actually that they start to implement that. So that that's the, the type of wage that you would get if you have no formal education at all. So it does vary a little bit, but generally speaking, it's, yeah, it's pretty tough and it got worse during the lockdown and it hasn't really recovered since then.
0: And where do we stand, Jeffrey, in comparison to other countries, especially developed countries, countries in which we want to benchmark our wages too?
1: Well, if you want to do that benchmarking exercise, I think it's very important to understand it's not just the wage itself, mm. it's also the living standard and the cost of living. And, and that has a big effect on understanding wages and where your wage should be. So you might take a, you know, take a view that wages here in Malaysia are lower, for example, than a benchmark country like Singapore or Korea, but the cost of living in Singapore and Korea is much higher. Than it is here in Malaysia. So, when you take these two things into account, yes, you might have a lower um, a lower wage in ringgit terms and also in dollar terms. If you were even to convert it into um, equivalent dollar terms, but because the cost of living is lower, then actually you you can live a quite a quite a good standard of living, even if your income is relatively low. So, you have to take that into consideration. Um, But I also like to look at something called compensation of employees. Right. Compensation of employees is a measure of how much of the total value added created in the economy is given to people in employment in the form of a wage. And this, to me, is a really good indicator of how fair a wage system is, or how the um, economy is structured, and how uh, wages compare. So, here in Malaysia, Um, employees get only about a third of the value added, created in the economy. It's been a little bit higher than that, but it's always been below 40%, and in the last couple of years, it's fallen to around a third. Whereas if you went to Singapore, it would be about a half, a little bit under a half, but about a half. And if you went to Korea, South Korea, it would be about 44%, so about 2% more. If you went to the United States, it would be 55%. If you went to the United Kingdom, it's 53%, In Canada also 52.5%. So if you go to those types of countries, the UK, the US, or Canada, um, employees are getting more than half of the value that is created in the economy, but if you look at... Compared to c- countries like Singapore and Korea, it's about um, uh, 40%, or a little bit under half, but here they're getting about a third. And that, to me, is an indicator of um, the, the, the fairness, if you like, in the labor system and the fairness in the, in the wage system.
0: Even Bank Negara Malaysia um, stated exactly what you did. For example, Bank Negara said that if a Malaysian worker produces an output worth of one thousand US dollars, he would only be paid three hundred and forty US dollars, whereas the corresponding wage received by a worker in benchmark economies for producing the same output worth one thousand US dollars the compensation was 510 US dollars. So would you say that Malaysian employers are simply not paying employees enough? Yes, yes. And I think
1: everybody knows this. Yes, is the answer <laughs> to that question.
0: Now, is this due to right-wing economic policies and, and neoliberalism? It isn't
1: neoliberalism, let me, let me tell you that historically. Mm-hmm. Because if, if we had a properly functioning labour market, Wages would be higher, and, the, the, and neoliberalism is based on the properly functioning markets. Properly functioning markets are a prerequisite to neoliberal and capitalist systems. So we hear a lot, don't we, uh, in the current discourse about employers complaining that they can't get workers. I mean, this is true, right? I mean, every day they tell us we, we can't get workers or we can't get workers of the right skills. and and so on. And this is why we are struggling, and this is why the government should help us out. They tell us this every day. But then at the same time, there is a huge number of people who are available to work. Malaysians, I mean. Okay? So unemployment in Malaysia is actually quite low. It's only about 600,000 people. It's about less than 4%, about 3.6%. The reason for that is that people can't afford to be unemployed. Because there is very little social welfare support, so they have to take jobs um, whatever they can. But what we do see is a very large amount of underemployment in Malaysia. That is, people taking jobs which are below their skill level. That's the one of one of them, which is the skills-related underemployment. The other form of underemployment is time-related underemployment, which is the not working full time. Um, and then we have a very large number of people who are outside of the labor force. This is huge. I mean, this is 7.2 million people who just aren't interested in getting involved in the labor force. Right. So, on the one hand, you have the employers saying, you know, we need employees in all sectors, construction, retail, plantations, wherever, manufacturing. On the other hand, you have a large number of people who are available. Ten million people, actually, if you add up outside the labor force, underemployed, unemployed people who could make themselves of it, ten million, there is no shortage of people. In a, a neoliberal economy, the market would adjust, the wage would adjust, the salary would rise, so that those people would come uh, into the job, they would offer themselves for jobs. That's how a neoliberal system would work, that's how a market system would work, okay? But we don't have that in Malaysia. What we have in Malaysia is um, um, a a system in which the the salary that is offered is offered by the employer and you take it or leave it. Let's look at at the plantations, okay? Because the plantations is just fascinating to me, right? During the last couple of years, particularly last year, they have been complaining with justification that they can't get plantation workers, okay? And that Malaysians don't want to work in plantations, particularly as harvesters. Right. Okay. And of course, they're not able to get the Indonesians because of the Indonesian labor ban, okay? Right. And because of this, 20 billion ringgit Of palm oil has been rotting on the trees, 20 billion, right? (laughs) So it's not that they can't afford to pay the people to cut it, right? They have the money. In fact, if they took the 20 billion and they raised the salary of the employees, they could double or triple the salary. The average salary for people working in plantations is only around 2,000 ringgit a month, 2,500 if you're lucky. And in some places, it's less than that. If you work for a big planter, you get a better deal. They could double or triple that wage. And they could pay for it with the 20 billion ringgit that's rotting on the trees. (laughs) But why don't they do that? Well, they don't do that because they are making sufficient profit whether or not they do that, okay? So they're not very really interested in adjusting the wage. They're not interested actually in employing more people. They're not interested in cutting the bunches and selling the bunches because they're already very profitable. And so for them, they would just ride through and let this whole system work out, okay? In a neoliberal system, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be the case. You would not allow with 20 billion ringgit of resources to fester on the trees. You wouldn't allow that in a neoliberal system. Right. So what we're seeing is something which is not neoliberal. It's something else. And uh, the, you know, the question arises, what is it? Well, How would you describe uh, such a market?
0: I guess I have to ask you, how would you describe such a market, right? Is it is it a, a, a crony capitalism market, as some capitalist defenders say, the problem isn't necessarily capitalism, but crony capitalism, but... On the other hand, I'm also wondering if this um, relates to you know um, unionization rates in Malaysia, which is abysmal. Um, we are talking about three percent of the entire workforce being unionized um, versus in in the best of um, countries when it comes to let's say labor rights within the country. We are talking about let's say Scandinavian countries, Denmark, and things like that, with a seventy five percent of unionization rate. I'm wondering if this is one of the reasons why it's like you put, employers would say, you know, we are making enough profits. It's all about our profits. So we would rather let $20 billion worth of palm oil rot away than increase wages for labor. Um, what do you, how, how do you take that?
1: One explanation is that it's an imbalance in the labor relations. It's an imbalance of power between the employers and the employees. And uh, you, you know, you mentioned trade unions and how trade unions can actually sometimes rebalance that because uh, they can represent em, em, employees and, and they, in negotiations they can help to raise the salary of em, employees. But I, I'm I'm not so sure that it's it's just a, a unionisation issue. I believe that the unions could be stronger and could be better in Malaysia, but they you know they need to improve. Um, across many dimensions. But in my view, it's not just the absence of unions. It's a, it's a failure of the rule of law, actually, mm-hmm. which means that even individuals, whether they're members of uh, unions or not, uh, find it very difficult to enforce their labor rights. Right. A market, a labor market, any market actually, requires a rule of law and it requires the enforceability of the rule of law, whether you do it collectively or individually. If you are ill-treated as a worker, particularly in terms of your wages, you don't get paid, there is a mechanism that you can follow, by all means. And there is a set of laws (laughs) that you can follow, by all means. But it is very slow and it is very cumbersome and um, it's very difficult for you, particularly if you're low income, to pursue that route because you have to get on with your life. And the result might not always be in your favour, even after very many months or years of going through that process. And as a consequence, when you take into account all the costs of doing that and the likely outcome of doing that, the lack of enforceability of your employment rights, whether individually or collectively, it, it just isn't worth it. So what people do is, Instead of fighting to get their money back, (laughs) some people do that, but most people don't. What they do is they just leave. Right. Okay. So often in economics, we call this the the choice of, we call it uh, exit, voice, or choice. Okay. The voice is that you get your union to go talk to your employer and say, you know, we're going to raise our salaries. That's the voice. Right. Yeah. Or you do it yourself. You represent yourself and go to the boss and say, you know what? I've been offered a job somewhere else or the market is like this or whatever it is that's voice sometimes that works if you have a good employer more often than not it won't it's as simple as that <laughs> they're not they're not going to listen to you that's it right so then the next option is that you leave and then you go find another job and i actively encourage people to do that you know if you're not getting the salary that you expect the terms and conditions of employment that you expect Go find another job because there are plenty of other jobs. They may have equally bad salaries, but who knows? (laughs) You might get a better boss, right? right? So you have that choice of exit. But there is a third choice. And the third choice is that you stay in the the job on these low salaries, but you just don't work very hard. (laughs) And uh, what that means is that your productivity is low. Why is your productivity low? If your productivity is low, because your salary is low. So if you work hard, you get a low salary. If you don't work hard, you get a low salary. And provided you don't get caught, you can stay there for as long as you want, doing as little as possible. And that is what's reducing the productivity and pushing down the productivity. In economics, we call this an efficiency wage problem. And the Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz wrote a very famous paper with um, Shapiro and Stiglitz, which is called uh, Working and Shirking. And how do you set the wage properly in order to encourage people to work hard so that you don't have, as a manager, you don't have to spend a lot of time monitoring them and worrying about them swinging their legs and not doing any work? You know, what is the what is the wage that should be offered? Right. Now There is is a wage that can be offered to encourage people to work hard, but it's above the wages that are being offered now. And that process to get that wage um, and to determine that wage is actually a little complicated. So one of the other reasons, of the first reason why you have these low wages is the imbalance of power. Yeah, I mean, this is well known even from Karl Marx. There is an imbalance of power right. between workers and employers. We know this for sure. But the second reason is even if there is a relatively evenly balanced power between the employer and the employee, there is an incentive for people not to work so hard. And the way you get over that incentive is that you find a, a way of compensating them properly so that they work. Now, so the second reason why we don't, you know, we have this low wage issue in Malaysia is that most managers don't pursue that type of efficiency wage process. They're not interested in engaging with their employees to find out what would be the wage, what would be the terms and conditions that would encourage you actually to (laughs) to work hard. (laughs) Right? They don't. They don't. They don't really care, and they're often driven by. You know, this is the market rate, take it or leave it. Or, this is how much I can afford, take it or leave it. And so the way that they're managing the labor relationship is not an interactive negotiation. It's like, this is it, that's it. And that's because um, often they're very small companies, they don't have the time to do this, often they're very busy, and often they're just not interested, frankly. It's, (laughs) It's basically... You're an executive level, this is how it is. You're a new graduate, this is how it is. You can't expect anything more, this is the market. You take it, you leave it. And what that means is that it keeps wages low because people um, either they choose to take the wage and their productivity is low or uh, they choose not to take that wage, they exit.
0: On the show with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. After the break, we continue our discussion on wages in Malaysia. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned, I'm Dr. Johan, and on the show with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Williams, he's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology, and we're talking about wages, or more specifically, why are wages so low in Malaysia? Now, according to Bank Negara Malaysia, Jeffrey, the prevalence, and I quote, of low-cost production model and high dependence on low-skilled foreign workers discourages productivity enhancement, depresses wages, and encourages the creation of low-skilled job. How do you see this? What is your assessment on, on this particular um, um, statement by Bang Negara Malaysia with regard to low wages in Malaysia?
1: I mean, this is a standard explanation right. as to why you have low wages, because the general economics of this, going back all the way to Alfred Marshall, who had a different conception of the efficiency wage that we just talked about. His conception of the efficiency wage was that wages are determined by your productivity and that uh, you're paid the value of your productivity. And in particular, you're paid the value of your marginal productivity. So whatever you produce, the next amount of it, you get paid the value of that. Right. And so wages, therefore, are linked to productivity in this model. And therefore, if you're... Heavily concentrated in economic activities where the productivity is low, you can expect the wages to be low. Or if you, but actually, rather than productivity, the value added is a is a nicer way of understanding um, what what you're doing in terms of your employment activity. So you're involved in an activity where there's relatively low value added, and so. As a consequence of that, your employer is going to say, Well, I don't make very much out of your time. So I'm not going to pay you very much. And that suppresses, according to this theory, that suppresses the um, level of um, wages. However, when we think about these, you know, if you ask the question, what is a low productivity, low-value-added, low-skilled job? One of the things that uh, people often say, is plantations. But as we've just mentioned in the example of the 20 right. billion that's being uh, not being harvested, that isn't the explanation for low wages in plantations. The explanation for low wages in plantations is an imbalance in the power relationship and an access to foreign workers who don't have any employment rights. And because they don't have any employment rights, they can be paid very low wages And these terms and conditions um, have gone not just to the low wage sphere, but to the human trafficking and uh, modern day slavery sphere. And that was the reason, of course, why the Indonesian ban was put in place. And that is not to do with productivity. That is to do with imbalance in the labor market and an absence of the enforceability of labor rights.
0: Right. Now... Is there a difference when we when we talk about low wages is there a difference in in approach um when it comes to quote unquote low skilled wages i don't like to use the term low skilled but you know that's the term that's being used low skilled wages or you know minimum wage versus say wages of professionals um are, are they the same issue and because we've heard politicians um who have said that, you know, when people question them, you know, we need to increase the minimum wage, they said, OK, you know, putting aside the minimum wage, we are going to work on increasing wages of professionals, of of people with, with higher education, for example. Um, and we know in some countries like Singapore... They, are, they don't have a minimum wage law, you know, the, the way Malaysia does. Um, we do know that in Singapore, foreign workers, domestic workers don't exactly get paid very high either. They, they get very, very low, low wages. But then when you look at the, the average Singaporean, they get like pretty decent wages and, and things like that, especially if you're a professional, you're an accountant, so on and so forth. So... Are they the same issue here when we talk about minimum wage or, or low skilled wages versus just wages of professionals?
1: Okay, I think that there is some uh, analogy, some similarity, but it's not at all direct and it's not at all precise. Hmm. But what I, what I would generally say is that if you are graduating from university and entering into a profession, uh, you are likely to suffer similar problems in terms of low pay, and it will only be over time that your salary will rise and that you develop various levels of expertise. and And when you develop a, a level of independence from your employer, that's when you are able to command higher wages. Um, so, for example, I think let me give you three examples just to show uh, in a professional context. The first is lawyers, young lawyers. So they graduate with a degree in law, and then they have to go do their certificate of legal practice and their pupillage, their chambering. And th- those guys, according to the bar council, don't uh, can't expect to be paid <laughs> to do to do that. Right. I mean, some law companies do. And But many don't, and when it came to the Bar Council and the young lawyers were saying, you know what, we should be paid the minimum wage, the Bar Council said, no, the Legal Professions Act doesn't allow us to insist on that amongst our members, and so on. So what that means is that these young lawyers have to go through an extended period of very low incomes before their incomes can start to rise and then they start their career and it can take a long time before they are attracting their own clients on their own basis. They have to work with uh, a law firm in order to to get the experience and to get the reputation before they're doing it for themselves. Now this is a big problem in my view because this isn't just a question of um, their salary nor is it a question of the Legal Professions Act or the role of the Bar Council. This is an economics issue of the incentives for corruption. Mm -hmm. Young lawyers have a very big role to play in the conduct of um, uh, legal matters that go to court. They they will write the affidavits, they will file the affidavits, all of this, right. If they're not paid properly, you, you cannot rely upon the quality of the work that they're doing. That's the first thing, of course, because they're working very hard. They're at the early stage of their career and also they're not being paid to, <laughs> to do this work. But it does, unfortunately, open up the possibility that um, they could be paid by someone else to do bad work. So if they are approached and somebody says, how much is your client paying you? Nothing. Well, I will pay you not to file that um, paper on time, or we'll file it, and perhaps it doesn't quite say what <laughs> what is there to represent your your client. Unfortunately, this type of not paying the pupil mentality does give rise to an incentive for well, if you're not going to pay me, somebody else might pay me, and that is a route. Not of course not for and not for everybody, but that is a route into malpractice in a professional context. Now, we can look at something similar for doctors, medical practitioners, I mean. They have loans when they come out of university, hundreds of thousands, of lots and lots, not a little bit, lots. And they have to go and treat patients. And if they go into the private sector and they are prescribing particular drugs, expensive drugs as opposed to generic drugs they get paid more if they do that if they were paid a proper salary and if they were given a proper a proper career progression from the outset then that type of um activity would uh, would be regulated better because they don't have to do it you, you see they don't they don't have to prescribe medicines just to make the money out of the medicines they don't have to prescribe procedures actually sometimes right unnecessary procedures just because they get paid. And therefore introducing a form of minimum wage for for those guys is also very important. And let me just give you a final example in the context of my own profession which is academics. Hmm. The real income of academics all around the world has fallen tremendously. I just saw this morning (laughs) in the United Kingdom that the real income of academics has fallen 75% since I left. 20 years ago, 75% in real terms. That is because the salary isn't rising and it means um, because because of inflation. And then I am thinking about my own uh, salary and the salary of my colleagues. And I can tell you that uh, my salary is lower now than when I came here 20 years ago, both in money terms and in real terms. Fortunately, I have a senior position. Right, right. (laughs) But there are now many academics who don't have a full-time job, and they don't have a senior position, and they are working part-time, as sessional lecturers, adjunct professors, and so on, on very low salaries. So they would be paid, on average, let's say for a one-hour postgraduate course, you would be paid 120 ringgit, which sounds a lot, if you can get a lot of hours during the week,
0: right. <laughs>
1: because you're paid by the hour. But then if you teach a class of, at 120 ringgit, and there are 30 people in the class, that's four ringgit per person per hour, right? Less than the price of a cup of coffee. Right. And for many academics, this is what they rely upon. They rely upon this hourly um, sessional lecturing. and Sometimes they teach at multiple institutions in order to build up their hours and then to build up their um, their overall salary. It's a form of gig economy, for sure. For some people it works, for some people not so much. But here's the issue when it comes to the ethics of the, the professional ethics. How much care and attention are you going to give a student when you're being paid four ringgit per hour? How much care and attention are you going to pay for an entire class? Even you're getting 120 ringgit an hour, but you do that once a week. (laughs) Okay? And then the question arises, when it comes to the assessment of their work, you don't get paid additional for the assessment in many instances, right? So why do you care whether they pass or fail? Well, the answer is you do care if they fail. Because if they fail in your class, you're not going to be given that class again, right? And if they fail in that class, the students are going to complain about you. right? And so the quality of the teaching declines and the complaints from the students go away and no one fails. <laughs> the only way that you fail is when you actually don't deliver your assignment or you don't turn up for the exam. <laughs> Otherwise, the incentive for the academic is definitely to pass everybody particularly because if you fail they have to then set an, another exam for you and then they have to mark that it's extra work for them and they don't get paid so this is a consequence of having salaries which are too low in three professions it leads to a very clear incentive toward professional malpractice right and the the incentive Whilst you might, you may, you, of course, you would fall into, call this into question in an ethical sense and in a moral sense, but then in a purely economic sense, you can see that where the incentive is coming from and how that um, will affect the quality of the professional services that you get. Right. So, just as earlier on I was talking about, you know, the working shirk when you're at a, in a, if you're in a lower uh, income job and you're getting paid a lousy salary you don't work so hard but in a professional context if you're paid a lousy salary it's not just that you don't work so hard you actually start to do things which you really shouldn't be doing in order to prop up your income and that's a real problem and it's a core cultural and behavioral issue it's not just of course again you know it's not unique to Malaysia this is exactly the type of um, uh, behavioral incentive-based economics that we see all around the book in cases where people are not paid properly in a professional context.
0: In the context of Malaysia, we've discussed a lot of problems and, and a lot of reasons mm-hmm. in that ties, um, that, that comes together, which causes the problem of low wages in the country. Would you, in a nutshell, say it's a problem with policy? Um, the kind of policies we have or the problem with with implementation and, and the problem with governance and and the problem with just politics
1: i'm not convinced that there is a particular political um issue here hmm. I, I believe that it is a failure first of the le- the legislative system i think that the, uh, the employment act and the employment amendment act was just Nowhere close to what is necessary in order to, to get that. But then there is an institutional issue the, the ability of people to get representation so that their rights are enforced. That is a very significant problem. That's a question of the employment court, the industrial court, and the whole process. In some countries, questions of employment are settled law. You have, don't have to go to the court. <laughs> you, know, you just go, and they ask you, "Did you?" You know, I wasn't paid, and then immediately they are an enforcement notice paid, because it's settled. There's no issue here. In far too many cases, there is a dispute in the court, and that's an institutional problem, in my view. But I feel also that there is a sort of cultural issue, which relate to this issue of exit voice and choice which is that um people will not voice their concerns people are happy to leave by all means and i encourage that good (laughs) people will choose to minimize their effort uh in jobs with low salaries for sure you see that every time but there is a, a a very significant absence of just raising your voice and saying, boss, you know what, I can't live on this. <laughs> right. And certainly collective action as well. There's an absence of collective action. And um, that's much more um, embedded, Much it's much more difficult to say that, and that's not a political issue. I, frankly, I don't think the politicians know nor care about these issues very much. Mm-hmm. And if they stayed out of it, that would be very much better. <laughs> but they have to stay out of it and leave behind a system of due process and a a system for the enforcement of your labour rights. And that's what we don't have. The system for enforcement of labour rights in Malaysia simply isn't fit for purpose in a 21st century
0: labour market. And on that note, Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That was Dr. Jeffrey Williams, an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check out the podcast on the BFM app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Today I Learned podcast. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9.